You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. and potentially the last film is difficult to discuss. On one hand, it's an exceptionally beautiful film, both in its traditional Miyazaki hand-drawn art, as well as its story of love and dreams. However, it's that story which also makes the film difficult to discuss, as it reimagines actual events and people in such a way as to make them more relatable, if not likable. The protagonist for The Wind Rises is Jiro Horikoshi, and it's a fictional blend of Tetsuo Hori, the author of the short story upon which this is based, and Jiro Horikoshi, the aeronautical engineer who designed the Zero Fighter aircraft. Now, the Zero Fighter aircraft was the best designed military aircraft created up until that point. For a time, its kill ratio was a mind-baffling 12 to 1 thanks to its exceptional maneuverability and range. It was a killing machine. Now, when people remember the Second World War, the first thing that comes to mind is the German slaughter of an estimated 26 million people. What they don't often consider is the fact that the Japanese slaughtered as many as 30 million, at least 23 million of them Chinese. And because Japan had not signed the Geneva Convention for the treatment of prisoners of war, they were especially brutal to captured soldiers and civilians, to the point of holding competitions over who could kill the most people with swords. There's a contest poster that was found for second lieutenants going into, and I quote, extra innings after they'd both killed over a hundred people with swords. So it is that Miyazaki has come under heavy protest for what some call whitewashing history in order to make the creator of this instrument of death more affable. While the segments of the film pertaining to Jiro's education and work on the plane are largely accurate, the personal aspects of the film, such as the marriage to the deathly ill Nahoko Satomi, are entirely fictional and some would say used largely as a means of turning Jiro into a hero, someone capable of incredible acts of love and selflessness. The Wind Rises was a spectacular film. I enjoyed it immensely. However, in order to do so, I had to accept it as a work of fiction. Because analyzing where it branches from reality leads to all kinds of problems. I can understand why Korean and Chinese audiences were furious with the film. Not because someone told the story of a man who designs aircraft, but because Miyazaki changed who that man is in order to make him more relatable and likable. The Wind Rises was Japan's highest grossing release of 2013, and so it's obvious that many others felt similar to what I've described. What about you? See, I don't know about uh, Jiro, the real-life Jiro's, how his particular stance uh, for how his designs were used. 
But as we've seen from Miyazaki as well as a number of the other uh, influential people at Studio Ghibli, they're very well aware of the many horrors and atrocities that took place in World War II, both from and against the Japanese. So I felt that the way Miyazaki told the story of how somebody, at least, again, the fictional interpretation of Jiro, just wanted to design beautiful things. And at the end, seeing you know what became of that, I still thought that was a very powerful statement to make. I think it is, but in so doing with an actual figure who they've changed so drastically, I think that actually hurt that message more than it helped it. And having looked a little bit more into the actual Jiro, the while he was against, in, in the little bit that I've read of it, in the statements that he's made where he was against it, it wasn't because of any moral high ground or because it was wrong or anything like that, but so much as because he felt it couldn't be won, it was futile. So that's why he didn't want to go up against the the American force, because he just didn't see any point that they would not win. So it, it, it's a different portrait of the man. Mm-hmm. And again, here's a man that was married, his wife didn't die, he had children, so there's a lot of differences there between who they are as people. And those changes were put in so that he was more relatable. And especially when you're looking at the dream sequences that they have, which as opposed to a lot of the other films that Miyazaki has made, which are fantastical and just full of insane imagery that normal people don't think about, (laughs) this is much more bad pun, but grounded in reality and that fantastical comes out when Jiro has these moments of when he has dreams wherein he gets to speak with his idol who is also a, a, a designer of aircraft an aeronautical engineer but an Italian one named Caproni who's voiced for the at least the English translation by Stanley Tucci who does such an amazing job but even those dream segments are meant or are seen as a way to make the character much more someone that we can relate to, someone who does not want to make military planes, but only does so because he has to. He just wants to make these fantastic passenger planes, which at the time was unheard of. And so you have those. Plus then you have people who have said, inlaying the groundwork for the amount of dreams and visions that he has and all that, you're essentially also saying that he wasn't in his right mind, which then gives him permission, quote unquote, for the what he did as well. So again, there's a lot of different little things that could have been averted had Miyazaki not chosen to ground the story in this one man who designed this incredibly potent killing machine, but try to make him lovable. See, it's it's an awkward thing to discuss because we've seen countless retellings of, you know, real life characters that have been fictionalized to 
you know, make them more relatable and whatnot. And any other time, it's, you know, it's not a big deal. But in this particular situation, yeah, it is a little more difficult to kind of digest. Well, again, you got to look at the, 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 the results of whatever those atrocities are. If you're making light of, you know, the peddler who steals bread to stay alive versus the, mer- the person who contributed to, you know, democide, there's, there's, the scales are going to tip <laughs> on that one. So it's going to be something that is harder to then justify. And I know that Miyazaki is against a lot of what the military has done. And that is why a lot of people also criticize them for this, because here was an opportunity to put those ideas into motion as opposed to what we have, which is changing history. And instead of pointing to the atrocities, making us care more for one of the people that was largely responsible for it. And to me, I see a big difference there. And again, I want to go back and say, I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Mm -hmm. It, it, It was beautiful as a fictional story without any kind of link to reality or to established history. It was great. The artwork was astounding. The voice work, I actually listened to the English um, dubbed one. And whereas more often than not, I prefer to hear the original actors and stuff like that. With Miyazaki films, I actually prefer the dubbed version because the it's so important not to take your eyes off of the artwork for any amount of time. Because there's always so much going on. And also because they put so much care and attention in the dubbing that it, it is always quite enjoyable. And this yeah. was no exception. So, Sorry, going back all the way to Princess Mononoke, Disney has spared no expense on their English language versions. Yeah. yeah. So again, all that just to say, I love this movie. But it's only when you start to analyze it and really think about what is going on here, what has been changed and why, that you that it, it changes your feelings about the film as well. Mm-hmm. So for those who haven't seen it, again, obvious spoiler warning right from the start. You have this story of this aeronautical engineer who is voiced in the English version by Joseph uh, Gordon-Levitt, who who does a very good job, but, I mean, he's a pretty mer- mellow character throughout. So I, I watched some of the extras for this, and they talked about how great he was in the character, and, and he was. He was good and he was believable, but it really wasn't much of a stretch, at least I thought. Yeah, it, it at least from an acting standpoint, it really doesn't take a lot to encompass Jiro. Yeah, so... Anyways, um, John Krasinski, who most people know from as Jim from The Office, did the voice of Hanjo, who's a, a good friend of Jiro's. So you see him at various points throughout the, the movie. The one thing that I will say, and, and this is on me because I should have looked beforehand at who the voice actors are. I try to do that now. Before you watch an animated movie or an anime movie also, 
Look at who the voice actors are so that while you're watching, you're not racking your brain saying, brain saying who is that? Who is that? I recognize. <laughs> and that's how it was for this one. It was like, oh, my God, I know this voice. And it finally dawned on me that it was Jim from The Office. Uh, Emily Blunt does the voice of the doomed wife, uh, Nahoko Satomi. And you have a bunch of other big names here as well. You, Martin Short. Stanley Tucci, uh, Mandy Patinkin, you have um, Werner Herzog, whose voice is just amazing. Yeah, Willie H. Macy, again, like you said, they didn't, they spare no expense, and, and it shows the voice acting for this is really, really quite good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I have a feeling that they were able to uh, bring in anybody they wanted yeah. by telling them this was going to be Miyazaki's last movie. Like, like even look farther down in the credits, you know, guys like Elijah Wood who play characters so minor, they don't even have credits for the Japanese version of that character. Yeah. <laughs> so like you said too, he's, he, this is supposedly his last film, but this is not the first time he's done that. He's announced six times that he was going to be retiring only to come back out of retirement. The, this one feels like it's going to stay. Yeah, the, the man's 72 years old. Um, he's getting old. And some of the comments that struck me was when he said he doesn't want to be dying partway through a movie. When you get to be that old and, and an obvious chain smoker as well, if you watch features with him, <laughs> then you realize that, yeah, he could you know, pass away while working on a film. And that would be a terrible thing. So it is somewhat more believable that this is going to be his last one. Um, going back to the story again. So we have Jiro here and the story starts off with, uh, with, with him on, on, on the train and, and meeting up with, well, you have the, the dreams as well and whatnot. But, um, the, the 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 main story starts with when he meets the woman that he is going to be marrying, um, but she is much younger at the time, and she's reading the piece from which this is named, and um, it's a French poem by uh, Paul Valéry, and it's uh, it's basically the 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 line is le vent se lève il faut tenter de, de vivre, and it's basically saying the wind is rising, we have to try to live, we must try to live, and so that is the basis for so much of the story the wind plays a huge part in this story not just in the aspects of you know lifting the planes up but also in terms of again that we have to try to live despite her dying and all kinds of other things like that and still at heart there's the war is going on throughout all of this this story and then you also have the great canto earthquake which was where they again um that relationship was really started because he helps her and her, her nanny escape from all of what is going on with the, with that earthquake. And so you have these powerful moments right from the get go, because that earthquake was massive, not just in scale, but in the effect that it had on people's lives back then. And they tie that into well, again, once he's gone through his schooling and he starts working, he starts working at uh, Mitsubishi, which was um, had a huge contract with the Japanese military in order to produce planes for them. And there's a lot of talk about how behind in times they are. Mm-hmm. And that has been the case often with Japan because of all the setbacks that they've had. 
they, they haven't been allowed to progress at the same speed as everybody else. So they, the like the um, his friend keeps talking about how they're still working with wood for planes and things like that. And again, the the destruction with the earthquake leveled the city so quickly because of the fires as well. And we saw that with different bombings where they use fire because everything's wood. And so they tie that in again then with the plane development when they get to see the German development of plane, then it's all metal. And then they're working with metal eventually with the planes that, that, uh, that they're working with in, in Japan and, you know, the, the flush rivets and all kinds of things like that. So it was, it was accurate to what actually happened with how that technology had to really ramp it up in order to not just compete with everybody else around the world, but, best them as well and it, again you kind of get into that little awkwardness of that they did i mean that the zero like you said was such an effective craft and like even miyazaki has said that there's not a lot that japan can be proud of from that time period but he feels they can be proud of their technological advancements that they made in actually creating the zero yeah yeah because it it was for the longest time the best um, military aircraft. And they they can still look at it today and wonder at its design and how well-crafted it was and designed. And that's one of the things reading up on Jiro as well and his life from that point on. He still held talks, wrote books on the design of that one craft, Years later, when he was still in his, his, I think, like 60s and 70s, was still talking about that one craft. That says a lot for how advanced it was. So you get a lot of that in the story. Again, in the story, though, it's it's he's doing this because he doesn't have much of a choice. He can't just build beautiful airplanes. And you have those dream moments again with Caproni where they're talking about, again, especially the the transport planes that they want to create and different things like that and creating flying ships for the sake of creating something beautiful that soars in the sky. But being forced into instead having to create these these killing machines and then you 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 get that romance that starts burgeoning with with um ah, what's her name again uh, naoko naoko and he knows almost immediately when he meets her again later on and he finds out when they're in, at a sanatorium together finds out that she has tuberculosis and she is going to to die and yet still continues that relationship with her so again you have to remove it from reality but this Jiro he's a hell of a guy (laughs) (laughs) you have all of this pressure mounting on his shoulders at work with designing this plane and making it work because there's failed attempt beforehand and whatnot and quickly rising up in the ranks in that division at Mitsubishi because of his intelligence and hard work and everything. And then everything going on with personal life 
to the point of like going back and forth to see her because she's not in the same city and then eventually moving her so that she can be close. And I mean, coming home and working and being still right with her all the time. So they, he does make this character into someone that you, even though he's not a very excited character in anything that he does, is still a very engaging character. Yeah, all the scenes we saw with Naoko, you know, with their courtship when they were, you know, when he was at a vacation or hotel or wherever that was, to like, like you said, once she moves in with him and like all the little things that we see, it's, it was very touching. And it, like that was really, you know, the heart and core of the movie to me. Like, you know, the airplanes were great, but that wasn't the story. The story was those two. Yeah. And again, it's, at points, it kind of feels like it's being hammered home a little too much with the wind rises because you have, again, mm-hmm. the wind catching his, um, what he was writing, which is what she picks up when she is, when they're on the pl- and the train and almost falls over. And, uh, or was it his hat? No, it was his hat. That's right. Yeah. And then later on with the umbrella while she's painting out on, on the hill. So you have a lot of moments like that in the, the plane, the paper airplane that he sends off to her while she's kind of closed off in her, in her room. So they really hammer it home at different points. And yet it still does tie it all nicely together so that when you're looking at it as an overarching theme of that relationship, it still is something that you can not feel good about, you know, but you can really, it, it, it moves you put it that way mm-hmm. yeah definitely and they she was they they met again at the it's a sanatorium that's where she was being treated and that's where you also see the other character which is the uh the german man who is basically uh he's actually based on a character from a thomas mann novel the from the the magic mountain so you have a character that is quite introspective and has spent a lot of time there avoiding the war and offers a lot of different insight to Jiro knowing who he is and, and what's happening and whatnot. So yeah, everything that happens there, that's a very pivotal moment in the entire movie from, from both aspects, not just from the relationship aspect, because that's when he cements his love for her and that he wants to be with her, but also with how he looks at what he's doing for the military as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Just, I, I'm sure you're leaning there, but that also leads into you know him living with Kurokawa, who is probably my favorite character <laughs> in the movie for just how like blatantly Miyazaki he is. <laughs> like, the, you know the, the the temper and just like his entire attitude, like that that is you know the Ghibli art style aside, like that's the one thing you can point to and go, yeah, this is a Miyazaki movie. <laughs> yeah, well, especially when you see that relationship change over time and how he's the hard edged boss initially. And then as he sees more and more of what Jiro can do, it turns more into respect and then to the point of hiding him out. And when they do the marriage at their house, the wedding was like, again, Kurokawa's role was hilarious. (laughs) It was you wouldn't think you'd be laughing at a wedding, but it, the way he handled it was was so great. Well, it's it's hilarious and heartwarming because he by that point he's gotten a lot more friendly 
in his own way with the character of Jiro. So, and it's funny because see, I can look at that and look at like my family, as you already know from me, <laughs> fairly sarcastic kind of bunch and, and snippy and things like that. And take, take pride in that at times almost, but uh, I can look back as far as like my grandfather and the relationship that I had with him and that he had with everybody. And if people didn't know him very well, they would think he was just this cantankerous old man that, was bitching all the time. Yeah, I know, I know. Save your comments. But you had those moments where you saw just how truly he cared for people. And part of it is that generation too. They didn't show it often. So when it came out, you really were stunned by it. And that's what we see here in this character. I kind of saw a lot of that where it's not until... You see a little bit here and there that respect burgeoning. But it's not until that that wedding that you you really see just how much Jiro has come to mean to him as well. Mm-hmm. And in, in his wife, Jennifer, Jennifer Gray, freaking dirty dancing chick. I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when these people from like out of nowhere, it's like a voice in this and you go like, well, that is so cool. Speaking of which, um, just as a quick tip, um, for people who like documentaries and who like this kind of thing, the, the voices behind, different shows i highly recommend the documentary uh, i believe it's called i know that voice it's on netflix right now and the wife and i watched it and it is fantastic i really strongly recommend it to anybody who's into this kind of thing so going back to the story again you kind of again you know where it's going to go simply because miyazaki has laid the groundwork right from the get-go that you know what is going to be happening with this plane and you know what is going to be happening with this relationship because she's dying. It's that simple. And so it's the the journey to get there that is the story and that you can really you can really feel something about. There's not much more to to go over than that. I don't know if there was anything that really struck you throughout the the most that you'd like to talk about well there there is one thing i would like to mention that actually bothered me about the movie and that's the sound effects how a lot of them were done by people that's why they were different miyazaki made it such a point that a a number of the sound effects would actually be done with you know human voices instead of you know actually making them realistic and on one hand that works phenomenally well for the dream sequences where you know you just have some guy making a, a motor noise for the airplanes flying by and it works fantastically but then when you have that same sound in the equivalent real world scenes uh, it just created kind of a disconnect with me like i i feel like i would have liked it a little more if they kept the the human sounds to the dream sequences and made it a little more realistic when they're, you know, in the quote real world. It just, it just kind of bugged me a little bit. I actually, whether it's because I was so drawn in by the story or so drawn in by the art, more likely, I actually really didn't, it didn't bother me at all, at all, at all. It just, it, it tied the movie in all together. And those dream sequences, I, I looked at those dream sequences differently than maybe even how they were intended just because of Miyazaki's history with how such fantastical moments take place. And to me, it, it kind of still blended 
into reality somewhat. So to keep it tied in with the sound worked for me. And again, I was so drawn in with the art that nothing could really take me out of the movie. And the art, like at first, I... Like it was definitely, you know, the Ghibli style. You know, it's instantly recognizable from anybody who 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 pays attention to that sort of thing. And I don't know, at first it seemed like the execution was a little more loose than we're used to, from from a Ghibli presentation at least. But you know, by the time like I watched the movie for a little while and I got into it, I was still able to appreciate it for how gorgeous it was. Just that first glance, it looked a little off, but it's just because it's like I said, it's it's outside of the mechanical precision if you will that we're used to from ghibli but for this movie it worked perfectly see i didn't see that either i i was impressed with it right from the get-go and to the point where some of the scenes i would say are some of the best he's ever done even like some of the 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 scenes especially the landscapes where you see a building with the, the the mountains all around and things like that and the trees were so astounding that I do believe they were probably the best he's ever done in his no, life. I I absolutely agree. It's like just I just like at first like it it seemed a bit off, but that's just because they were taking a slightly different approach yeah. than usual. And he said, when you watch so many Ghibli movies, you know, one I don't want to call it an inconsistency, but you know, a small change, like at least for me, it just really stood out at first. Right. But you know, once I gave it a, a little bit of time, it sunk in, and it was still gorgeous. Yeah. So we're going to wrap it up at that. Again, I didn't want to take too, too long on this, this one film. This might be the last Ghibli movie period though. No, it won't be the last studio Ghibli movie. It'll be the last Miyazaki film. Well, the studios. No, they, they put out a couple more movies and the studio said that they're kind of getting out of the feature film business. Oh, I see. I hadn't read that, actually. Mm-hmm. They're, they're halting production on all their feature films to reassess their role in uh, Japanese art. Oh, okay. That I didn't know. But I really want to see the movie that came out right after this. It was originally supposed to be a double billing, just like uh, the Totoro and Grave of yeah. Fireflies, because it was the latest movie from uh, Isao Takahata, who was the guy that did Grave of Fireflies yeah. and some of the other ones. And it just... It looks like such a great movie. I have to find it. I doubt it's going to get much of an American release, so I may have to uh, work some magic. But it's called The Tale of Princess Kaguya. And it just it just looks amazing. Like a princess from the moon. Like it's it's your typical Ghibli stuff, like without the, the Miyazaki influence, the stuff we've seen from Takahata over the years. So I just I really have to find that movie. <laughs> Has it actually been released? Yeah, it, it came out uh, in Japan on uh, late last year. And it hasn't gotten any sort of oh no, well, it had it comes out in two weeks oh, okay. in America. <laughs> I just saw that. Okay, so I definitely check that out. Yeah, loop back around on that one. But yeah, because it was like two weeks after Miyazaki had announced his retirement, Ghibli came out and said, "Oh yeah, we're going to rethink what we're doing here." Because I, I guess they they figure that without that name recognition, you know, in, in America the common thought is studio ghibli you know it's it's the studio that stands out but i don't know maybe in japan it's the miyazaki himself that's you know kind of the well again the man does so the much draw. there 
Oh, I no, mean, I, it's, I absolutely it's, agree. He's so involved said, in every aspect of the movie's creation. I'm saying as far as it, their Western popularity, like there are so many people who I know who are really into the movies, but they're just Ghibli movies. They're not Miyazaki movies. Yeah. They don't know the distinction between the two. Whereas I'm sure in Japan, the distinction is very obvious yeah. to the consumer base. So maybe they're thinking that without the Miyazaki or at least Hayao Miyazaki without his name behind it, that they don't know if they can continue at least at their their expected level of output. Because That's I'm sure with, given the quality behind their films, their budgets have to be a, a little more intense than your typical animation budget. Again, though, that would be too bad, not just because of his son who's returned and, and doing movies again as well, but also because of the training that he's done for the various people that work there. Like if you watch some of the, um, the, the specials, Especially for, which one was it? I can't remember which one it was, but there was a special where they showed the amount of work. It might have been Spirited Away. The amount of work that he did and with the crew. And there was, and I wish I could remember the name of the man. But there's a man there that he's basically been training all along who does an insane amount of work as well. He's basically... Miyazaki's right-hand man kind of thing and does a ton of work. So again, it would be a shame if those people that he had trained would not get a, a chance to shine themselves once Miyazaki is gone. And now that I'm looking into it, the uh, the Princess Kaguya movie, despite the fact it got great reviews and was nominated for countless awards, on a budget of $49 million, it only made 24 oh, That's too bad. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I think that might be... Uh, part of the issue that they're seeing there yeah well we'll see we will see i it, it would be a shame but i mean it will be a shame regardless once he's done making movies and if that's this one then sadly all we have now is the ones that he's already put out to watch over and over and <laughs> over again and especially if you have kids you've already done that so with that we were going to call it a wrap without kids <laughs> Especially with kids is what I'm saying. I literally we were um, my my all the kids were over because it was my eldest daughter's birthday yesterday, so we were all chit chatting, and I was talking to my youngest daughter about um, this mo- very movie and saying that we were going to be doing this episode on that and whatnot, and that she should really watch it. And she was saying she remembers when she was young, my neighbor Totoro was quite literally a almost weekly watch like it was just they seen it so many times because especially when you're a kid you want to watch those same movies again and again and again you never get tired of it kind of thing so and Miyazaki films have always played a prominent role in our household so it is sad if this is his last film I can respect that and and the man for what he's accomplished and just still be a little sad (laughs) that there's no more coming so like I said, make sure to check the show notes at popcornronin.com. Leave us your comments as well. And next episode will be a little bit more uplifting. And, uh, and, uh, and that's it. We'll talk to you later. My God, that was a terrible outro. <laughs> I blame the meds. <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to re-record that after we're done. <laughs>
more movie, TV, and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. If you'd like to hear more from Roger and Vince, check out their comic book informer podcast and Internet Dragons TV gaming videos. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, ManelliJamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs. Mm-hmm.